0: Let's uh, pray as we open the word of God together again. Father, with the psalmist, we repeat and we pray that you have made us and you have fashioned us. Give us understanding that we may learn your commandments. Lord, we need understanding. We need understanding and and enlightenment, and we need illumination as, as we read your word. Our hearts lord are being transformed by you into the image of christ and we thank you for that we need your help as we open your word again and especially this week in this passage that has some uh difficulty we ask your help lord help us to as jennifer prayed earlier to not leave this place untransformed and unchanged but by your word and spirit now speak to us we pray in jesus name amen I'll start this morning with uh, basically stating an obvious fact. Fish need to live in water. How's that for stating the obvious? Water is the environment in which a fish lives. A fish can live nowhere else except in water. Growing up in Alberta, we used to... uh, catch a pretty common fish, the one that's pictured on the screen there in Alberta lakes, at least it was common, the northern pike. A northern pike, otherwise known as a jackfish, will only live for about five minutes outside of the water. So we had to be uh, relatively efficient. and We always practice catch and release. We had to be efficient with our catch and release technique. The fish had to go right back in its watery environment, Uh, just as soon as we pulled the hook out of its mouth and lifted it again over the edge of the boat well listen friends just as water is the fish's environment so Christ is the Christians environment and I'm borrowing from the Scottish theologian James Stewart who wrote Christ is the redeemed person's new environment I love that Stewart talked about the fact that you and I constantly we are drawing from our physical environment around us for our physical life and for our sustenance so for example we breathe the air of the physical environment which last week was a little smoke filled we eat food that is grown in the environment and we drink the water that is part of the environment this is how we maintain our physical strength and our sustenance well in the same way Stuart said the person who is in christ who is in that new environment called christ he or she draws spiritual life and strength and sustenance from that new inexhaustible environment and we do that of course by prayer by worship by surrender to him our next passage in colossians is really a great resounding shout concerning the glory and the peerless advantage of being in christ of being in our new environment my friend in Christ, are you aware this morning of all the breathtaking benefits of your union with Jesus Christ? Let's listen to the Apostle Paul once again as he gives us what I would call it's, it's really a doxology, it's a song of praise about Christ and all the benefits that are ours because of him. So the passage starts though we need to note the passage starts not on a note of praise but rather on a note of caution a note of warning Paul says to the church he exhorts the church see to it that no one takes you captive By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, Paul has already stated the very blessed fact in chapter one of his letter, verse 13. That the Christian person is one whom God has delivered delivered from the domain of darkness remember and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son so God has already friends in Christ God has already broken our captivity yes he has freed us we must not be taken captive or enslaved again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now we need to notice this very carefully in verse eight that it is at least possible, listen, it is is at least possible For Christians in the church to be taken captive by philosophies by systems of thought that are not according to Christ it is indeed possible for me as a believer in Jesus Christ and for you if you are a believer in Jesus to be caught as prey and bound by a worldly philosophy that is not in accord with the christ that paul has been preaching in this letter there is a danger that our minds and our hearts can be commandeered by some very persuasive sounding human tradition that is out of joint with what god has revealed to us in his word that is counter to life in Christ now notice very carefully here the verb take captive don't be taken captive that's the danger the danger is not that we give a hearing to a philosophy like the one that Paul describes in this verse that's not the danger the danger is not that we try to make sense of and try to understand such a philosophy or such a theory, the danger, note very well, is that Christians might be taken captive, enslaved by such a human centered, empty, deceitful, ultimately void philosophy that is not according to Christ. Now, personally, I think it's wise for us, I think it's wise for us as Thinking Christians to go ahead and learn at least something about the variety of philosophies that are current in our world. Whether we're talking about capitalism, socialism, feminism, critical theory, materialism, democracy, postmodernism, horoscopes. Etc., etc., and to test those philosophies by this verse. To ask the question how or how not is this philosophy that I'm looking at according to human tradition and not according to Christ? How or how not might this philosophy be connected with the elemental spirits of the world, connected with the hostile supernatural spirits that are anti-christ that christ has already defeated how or how not is this philosophy that i'm considering more characterized by human speculation and less characterized by the mind of christ and obviously to do that we have to know our bibles deeply and thoroughly. But Paul has this concern in verse 8 and his concern is that we the church not be taken captive, not be deluded by Christless empty hollow yet persuasive sounding philosophy. Now, say you are standing with a friend at the counter of your local dep, And you reach for a Mars bar. And suddenly your friend grabs your hand and says, no, don't do it. Don't take the Mars bar. It's full of simple sugars. There's no nutritional value in that Mars bar. Don't do it. Instead of that, I have an alternative for you, so come with me. And so you go with your friend who then drives you to a ritzy restaurant where a professional chef has prepared for you a five-course meal of the highest quality, the most sumptuous food imaginable, imported fresh from all over the world. And it's all for you. Well, that's the sort of thing that's going on as we go from verse 8 with its Mars bar, hollow, worldly philosophy, to verse 9, where we have the Michelin star meal. Paul says in verse 8 make sure you're not taken captive by Mars bar philosophy, human centered, Christ lacking, deceitful systems of thinking. And why? Because in Christ you have the five course meal. For in him the whole fullness of deity <laughs> dwells bodily. Take any of your verse 8 Mars bar philosophies and systems of thought, take them all together, put them all together in a giant heap. And what you'll find is that you have no deity. Why? Because how much of the fullness of deity? Yes, the whole fullness, couldn't be any more clear, of deity dwells bodily in Christ. If you were searching for God somehow in your human manufactured Christ less philosophies he won't be found there the whole fullness of deity not just a part not just a measure of deity but the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ you see my friends at one time God was pleased to dwell on earth on Mount Sinai and then in the tabernacle and then in the Jerusalem temple and Mount Zion But now the temple of God, the tabernacling presence of God, the true holy of holies is none other than the physical crucified and risen and ascended and soon coming Jesus Christ. And you, says Paul to believers in verse 10, listen to this. Are you a Christian this morning? You have been what? Filled in who? In Him. You've been given, believer, fullness in Christ. Christ is your new environment. Like water is the environment of a fish. You have been filled in him, brought to fullness in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So Christ is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. He himself is the end time temple whose church, by our union with him, also receives fullness yes we enjoy the tabernacling presence of god in us by virtue of our union with him now this is a great great reality for you believer it is a great reality according to this verse we who believe are in a vital union with the one whose authority is limitless yes The one who indwells us is supreme over every rule, over every authority, whether it's a human-made philosophy or a hostile demonic force or whatever it is. All authority, all authority belongs to the risen Jesus in both heaven and on earth, and that will never, ever change. And then we come to verses 11 and 12 you know the Apostle Peter in 2nd Peter 316 he came out and admitted that in the scriptures that Paul wrote there are some things Peter said that are hard to understand I think Colossians 2 and 11 and 12 that Paul wrote might fit that category Of things that are hard to understand but if you're willing together with the help of the Lord let's let's take a stab at this at least let's try to make some sense out of these two verses but now before we venture to verse 11 where have we just been in verses 9 and 10 just as a recap reminder so in verse 9 Paul has described Jesus effectively as the new temple Jesus is the place where the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily And then in verse 10, Paul links us, links believers, links the church into that temple, saying that we have been filled in him who is the fullness of deity. So in verses 9 and 10, there is this definite temple or end-time temple idea. Christ and his church, the end-time temple of God now watch this in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel chapter 44 I don't have the verses on the screen if you have a Bible and want to turn there you can Ezekiel chapter 44 verses 7 through 9 God said that his people Israel had carelessly allowed foreigners to come into his sanctuary to come into his Temple. And God said in that passage that the reason those foreigners were not allowed to enter his sanctuary, his temple, is because they were not circumcised. Circumcision was required if you wanted to enter the temple. Why? Because circumcision was the physical sign of the old covenant. But what we find there in that Ezekiel 44 passage is that God provides a definition, listen, a definition of the kind of circumcision that he was after for entrance into the temple. It wasn't merely a circumcision of flesh. It was also a circumcision of heart. it was a spiritual circumcision it was the circumcision that god had described way way back way before ezekiel in deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 when he commanded listen to what he commanded, he commanded israel he commanded them to circumcise the foreskins of their hearts It was the circumcision that he himself promised to perform on them personally when he said in deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 that he himself would circumcise their hearts and the hearts of their offspring and the prophet jeremiah would later express the necessity for israel and for the nations To have this heart circumcision surgery he did that in places like Jeremiah 4 4 and Jeremiah 9 verses 25 and 26 this spiritual circumcision turns stony dead hearts into hearts that are full of life hearts that are full of love to God And again that Ezekiel 44 passage it was necessary it was necessary this circumcision of the heart if you were to enter into the Lord's temple now back to Colossians regular scheduled programming again verses 9 and 10 recap Christ is the end-time temple of God And his church is temple first corinthians 3 ephesians 2 his church is temple by virtue of our union with him and in order for us to abide in this temple we need to be circumcised in heart males and females both and so in verse 11 paul says in him also You were what circumcised with what with a circumcision made without hands now let's notice a couple of things here notice first of all those words also you we could translate those words in another way as even you again Paul is talking to a mostly Gentile church here remember even you gentiles you were circumcised you're not even jewish but as foreigners you were circumcised but your circumcision notice is not the physical human undertaken circumcision when an infant is eight days old yours is the circumcision that really counts for jews and gentiles alike it is a circumcision made without hands. That is, it is a divinely undertaken, divinely executed circumcision. It is the circumcision of the heart. It is the spiritual circumcision that God gives in his great grace to believers that was promised as far back as Deuteronomy. And all this has happened, says Paul, where? In him in Christ in your union with Christ in your union with the true temple in your new environment named Jesus this is how this new life called circumcision of heart has come but now along with being about new life this circumcision also has to do with death And that's where Paul goes next when he says, rather shockingly, that this spiritual circumcision involved not just stripping away a piece of flesh, but rather the stripping of the entire body of flesh. Notice. The believer in Jesus Christ has been circumcised by putting off, or probably a better translation from the original Greek, by stripping off the body of flesh now what in the world does paul mean here well with several uh, new testament scholars i really had to do my homework this week helping me out here i take this to mean this that in this spiritual circumcision that the lord performs the whole old sinful person the whole body the whole self including heart and mind is put off is stripped away that old self that old Adam that was dead in trespasses and sins that was bent toward rebellion against God enslaved in sin God puts off God strips off. So that this spiritual circumcision that God gives to believers is then, we need to notice, a radical, isn't it? A radical, extreme sort of surgery. It's the putting off of the old sinful nature. And I think we're helped a great deal here by a verse like Romans 6, 6 to get to the idea of this surgery and what happened listen to that verse Romans 6 6 Paul says we know that our old self Christian was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin For the believer in Jesus Christ, there has been this radical surgery. This radical spiritual circumcision. And in the final phrase of verse 11, Paul says, listen, that the believer's spiritual circumcision happens how? By the circumcision of Christ. Now, I hope you're still with me the key issue here is how we interpret those two words of Christ some scholars argue that the circumcision of Christ is the circumcision that Christ himself undergoes which in this instance they argue is his death on the cross The circumcision of Christ then in this understanding is his own putting off of the physical body that happened in his death. So that our spiritual circumcision, our death of the old person happens in union with Christ's death on the cross. Our spiritual circumcision happens by the circumcision or by the death Of Christ that's one possibility other scholars argue something different the circumcision of Christ refers to the circumcision that Christ performs that Christ effects so that the idea here is that our spiritual circumcision is what is a circumcision that is performed by Christ and then I'm gonna muddy the waters even further And give you one last one a third option is to see this phrase the circumcision of Christ as referring to the circumcision circumcision that belongs exclusively to Christ in the New Covenant as opposed to the circumcision belonging to Abraham or belonging to Moses in the Old Covenant now Probably you're thinking about, boy, that sandwich is going to taste great later. (laughs) Personally, I think that it's a combination mostly of the second and third options. In other words, I would argue that Paul is talking here about a spiritual circumcision that is performed by, effected by, the risen Christ, and that belongs exclusively to him as the Lord of the new covenant. And I think that's the case because Paul is writing into a particular situation that the the Christians, the Colossian Christians, were up against. Remember verse 8? There was a situation for the Colossians where they were being influenced by a philosophy... And we've said in sermons past that likely, based on the evidence we have in the letter of Colossians, likely this particular philosophy was a mixture, a syncretism of Jewish and Greek ideas. And it could very well be that Paul raises the, this concept of circumcision out of nowhere in verse 11 because some errant idea of circumcision was being suggested to the Colossians by the false teachers Paul wants the Colossian believers to know that they need not look anywhere else than Christ for the only circumcision that counts the circumcision they need is the circumcision of Christ meaning the circumcision that he performs the circumcision that belongs exclusively to him that he gives to believers Well, my friend, are you a person who has held out to Jesus your empty hands and received him by faith? He is the end-time temple of God in whom we participate when he circumcises us with the death of the old and the giving of the new. Now, as we come to verse 12... It's crucial, I think, to keep firmly in mind where Paul has just taken us (laughs) in verse 11. So verse 11, he's talked about spiritual circumcision, this radical heart surgery that is divinely performed on the believer. It's a cutting away of the old, stony, sinful heart. It is a death, and it is a bringing to new life. A little later this morning, we're going to be baptizing six believers these are people who will declare before God in this public setting that yes he has already performed this heart surgery on them we might put it like this that for these six believers the Spirit of God has already listen baptized their hearts and the water baptism that will shortly happen, signifies that spiritual cleansing and that spiritual regeneration. The New Testament makes it very clear in several places that there is what we could describe as a two-sided single coin. A two-sided single coin. Spirit baptism and water baptism water baptism is the ordinance that signifies or portrays spiritual baptism water baptism portrays what has happened to believers in the spirit and by the spirit but in the minds of the apostles we need to know spirit baptism and water baptism were so closely related that they couldn't be separated for very long at all And I think this is a crucial point to keep in mind now as we visit verse 12 where Paul links the spiritual circumcision that he's just talked about in verse 11 with baptism he says having been buried with him in what baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, here Paul is describing what? He is describing the action of God as God supernaturally, spiritually baptizes people inwardly, as He circumcises their hearts. He works a death of the old sinful person who is buried with Christ and then raised to life with Christ. And this happens through faith, as Paul says here. But at the same time, Paul hasn't left out the water baptism side of the coin either. The water baptism that you and I will witness later on this morning is where what has happened by the Spirit and what has happened in the Spirit to the new believer is portrayed. Is signified as that person goes under the water, signifying that the old life is buried, that it is swept away, and then rising up out of the water to signify that new life in the risen Christ is a reality for that person because of God's powerful working. So get this it's not that water baptism by itself actually conveys or supernaturally works death burial and resurrection baptism does not save instead water baptism signifies that god himself has worked death burial and resurrection in a person in christ and with christ as paul says twice In this verse so water baptism then signifies in an outward way the inward grace the inner baptism that God has worked in a believers life well verses 11 and 12 as we try to negotiate all of this dense Pauline stuff in verses 11 and 12 I think it's important not to lose focus of verse 8 remember verse 8 where all of this began paul's concern was that the colossians ditch their attraction to empty human-centered philosophy and see that christ is all they need he is their all all deity dwells in him they are filled in him his authority is without limit he is the only one who can work Radical heart change in human beings, a circumcision, a death of the old life, a burial, a resurrection to new life. Christ is all they need. Paul continues then in verse 13 to showcase more of the glory of being in Christ. And you who were dead, you who were corpses, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses my friends notice won't you how bringing a person from spiritual deadness to spiritual life is God's domain believer in Jesus you and I had absolutely and I want you to know this zero ability to respond to God how much ability did you have to respond to God zero, zero according to the New Testament as Brian Chapel has put it our destiny was not in our hands we don't like that but we were dead But then in a sovereign act of grace and love christian when we were ungodly remember god made us alive in christ he took us in our uncircumcision that is in our state of sinful unbelief and he circumcised our hearts killed the old and brought the new hallelujah praise him for his work on undeserving sinners And Paul proclaims here that in Christ, because of Christ, all our trespasses have been forgiven, blessed, gracious, glorious fact, and that this forgiveness has happened how, verse 14, by what? By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he, what? Set aside, nailing it to the cross, Now, borrowing from the picture that John Woodhouse gives in his Colossians commentary, I think this is good. So think of at your house, okay, on your wall, at home, maybe in your office, on your office wall. You might have a framed degree of some sort or a framed certificate from a school that says you completed the course. You completed, finished the program. That frame certificate is hung up there on your wall. It's something to feel good about, right? But imagine having a frame certificate hanging on your wall on which was written every single sin and transgression you've ever committed for which you stand as a debtor to almighty God. For me, that ugly frame certificate would be far bigger than the entire wall on which it it was hanging to contain all my debt. And I definitely would not want that thing hanging there at all. I'd want to take it down, hide it, perhaps destroy it. But that wouldn't change anything because I'd still be a debtor to God for all of my many, many, sins and verse 14 says that God before whom both the Jewish and Gentile persons stand in massive unpayable debt God has taken action himself the word canceling here in this verse is the same Greek word that at Revelation 7:17 7, is translated wipe away when God wipes away the tears from a person's face it's the same word believers in Jesus God has canceled get this deep in your soul he has wiped away he has blotted out the entire massive certificate of death debt that stood against you with its legal demands it has been obliterated Paul says here that the record of debt has been set aside, nailed to the cross. What do I know as a believer? I know that as a believer, that my massive record of debt to God because of all my law breaking, because of all my transgressions against him, all of it has been placed on Jesus, yes? At the cross. The sinless one died as my substitute by his unfathomable grace taking on himself the penalty that I so richly deserved bleeding suffering dying being mocked in my place so that I might have peace with God forgiveness and reconciliation all I can say is praise the Lord And you know that massive record or certificate of debt that stood against us? This was a prized and powerful weapon against us in the hands of Satan and company. Who loved to accuse us. Have you been accused this week? Who loved to accuse us of our guilt over and over and over again. Day and night, by pointing out, pointing to how much and how often we sin, how much we have failed God. And with that weapon in hand, I think Satan was probably feeling pretty confident on the day when Jesus was crucified. Finally, Satan said, My great victory is here at last. Look at Jesus helpless on that cross now his life ebbing away I have it made in the shade with a glass of lemonade now our final verse this morning and then we'll be done and I want you to hear it because it gives us the real story of what was happening on the cross verse 15 describes what I would call the great outwitting Of Satan and his powers Paul writes he meaning the Lord our God he disarmed the rulers and authorities literally again the word here is stripped God stripped Satan and his minions at the cross in the weakness of the cross God was doing what he was stripping away that great weapon that Satan used against us, yes? Stripping away the power that Satan had. The record of debt that Satan used against us has been wiped away by the blood of the lamb, canceled, obliterated, done away with, and the evil powers have been put to open shame by God, triumphing over them in him, in the crucified, Jesus Christ. Now imagine here, in your mind's eye, a military parade through the streets of Rome with the victorious army leading their defeated opponents in chains. And as that parade goes down that road, the crowds on either side are mocking and jeering at those defeated opponents as they are led away to their executions that's the picture here in paul's words as donald MacLeod has described it quote satan and his demons are part of god's victory parade the crucified one marches in triumph through history satan tied to christ's victory car satan's bedraggled army in chains half dragged half running in view of the whole moral universe on their way to execution jude 6. my friends in christ he is our everything as we close now let's just recap The gorgeous territory that we've covered in these verses this morning believer in Jesus know this know this this week that you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority and all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him and he has performed radical spiritual circumcision on you and in baptism You've been buried with him and risen with him. You've been made alive with him and your trespasses have been forgiven, wiped away, obliterated at the cross where he also stripped the powers that accused you. Christ Jesus is your new environment. Like a fish can only live and flourish in water. You as a believer can only live and flourish in Christ. Don't be taken captive by contemporary philosophy and empty deceit. Christ is your everything, and he always will be. He is your perfect, your eternal environment. So this week, I want you to recenter your whole self in him. Fall at his feet and open to him your empty hands. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this word that you have inspired that is so profound and so meaningful, although difficult, Lord God. We thank you for being with us and helping us today. And Lord, now as we move into a time of baptism, we pray your spirit be glorified in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.